1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. This is the word of God. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. There in that 58th verse, we have our word that we focused on somewhat this morning, that word vain. Here is the last occurrence of it. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And you may recall this morning that I made something of a connection between the word vain as it occurs four or five times in this chapter with the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all this labor which he taketh under the sun? So asked King Solomon in his later years. And Solomon had seen so much of the advancement of the kingdom of Israel. He saw the temple built. He saw the nation strengthened. Indeed, I think it would be fair to say that King Solomon represents, historically speaking, the nation of Israel at its climax. And yet, in his old age, he confesses that life seems to be empty in spite of all that, and life seems to be brief. You recall I said that the word vanity means breath in the Hebrew, and it depicts how life comes and goes as a breath or as a vapor, as James says in his epistle. And we noted this morning how Paul touches upon the subject of vanity in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, by which gospel also ye are saved if ye keep in memory or literally hold fast what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. What makes believing in vain or reduces it to vanity? Well, the absence of the resurrection certainly contributes to that or failure to hold fast the word. Verse 10, Paul referring now to his own testimony, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. What can make grace vain 
or reduce it to vanity. Indeed, what could have made all of Paul's labors vain or worthless? Well, certainly the absence of the resurrection would pull the rug out from under everything that Paul endeavored to do, every soul that he preached to, every church that he established. It's all vain if Christ be not risen from the dead. But you can also draw another application from, uh, from Paul's example as well, and that is something else that makes the, the grace of God vain is our failure to put it to work. You see, grace transforms the life of a Christian and should inspire a Christian's zeal. The so-called Christian whose life is not transformed and whose zeal to labor for Christ is not inspired, you might argue that he reduces grace to vanity. Verse 14 And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith also vain. So what can make faith and preaching vain? Here again, if Christ didn't rise literally and bodily from the grave, then I'm wasting my time, not only here today, but over the last 20 years. All a waste, all in vain, if Christ be not literally and physically raised from the dead, then you might argue we've just been following cunningly devised fables all this time. My, how vain is that? But it is to this exhortation now in verse 58 that I call your attention. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Every effort you exert for Christ, every word that you speak for Him, every deed that you perform for Him, our text tells us that every effort counts. It's not in vain. None of it. Because Christ is indeed risen from the dead. But you know, there's kind of a sad irony that so many Christians view their labor for the Lord as being so vain that they fail to perform that labor, or they perform it so half-heartedly that they practically make it vain. That man will never believe the gospel. That man that I work with, that man who is so obstinate and so blasphemous and so hard-hearted, he'll never believe the gospel. His heart is too hard. He's set in his ways. So why bother? Our effort will only be in vain. That's the way we're tempted at times to think, isn't it? In contrast to such a feeble mentality... Paul tells us that we're to be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. And the grounds for such determination and multiplied effort should be because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord and the 
truth emerges from this text that if we are going to give heed to the admonition to be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the Lord's work, we must be convinced with all our hearts that our efforts are not in vain. And so that we may be convinced of this this afternoon, I want to spend the remaining moments addressing the question, how can we know that our labor for the Lord is not in vain? How can we have assurance of that? And certainly the resurrection of Christ provides a strong answer for that. But I'm going to break it down and analyze it even a little beyond that, if you will. After all, there are times that it does seem to be so empty and fruitless. The world scoffs at our labor of communicating the gospel. The devil tells us it's vain. The flesh tells us it will only bring great reproach. It won't accomplish what we want. It's not worth the cost. How then can we know that our labor is not in vain? Well, let's consider first of all, we need to understand the spiritual nature of our labor for Christ. The spiritual nature of our labor. Paul is tying the exhortation in verse 58 into all that he has said concerning the resurrection of Christ. You'll note how the verse begins, Therefore, in light of what he has said, in light of the truth that Christ is risen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because of all I have explained to you about the fact and the nature of Christ's resurrection, you must know that your labor is not in vain. Now in verses 42 through 44, we have the nature of the resurrection described. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And Paul is here describing a body that's been laid in the grave. The burying of that corpse is like the planting of a seed, you could say. It's something that is sown. It's sown in corruption, without honor, in that any honor gained in life is now left behind. It is sown weak. What can be weaker than a corpse? It can exert no effort or resist anything. This is a natural body, dead and decaying. And yet that body will be raised up just as surely as Christ himself arose. And even though that body is laid in the grave, corrupt and dishonored and weak and natural, it will not only be raised, but gloriously raised, incorruptible, glorified with renewed power, just as surely as God created man from the dust, so will God raise man again from the dust to which he has returned. Our labor for the Lord, you could say, functions in much the same way. In fact, our labor a number of times in Scripture is likened to the process of sowing and reaping. 
The Lord told the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, and he explained that the seed sown was the word of God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. How often have you heard Psalm 126 verses 5 and 6 used to describe Christian labor? They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. In many ways, this labor of sowing and reaping follows a similar pattern to what we have in 1 Corinthians 15. We sow in corruption. We ourselves are far from perfect, and our efforts are far from perfect. We still have a corrupt nature within that affects what we do and how we do it. But does that decaying body returning to dust hinder the power of God in raising it? Absolutely not. No more does our own imperfection or our own corrupt nature hinder God from using our efforts to bring souls to himself. We sow the word in dishonor, you could say. Who are we to speak for God? Are we experts in matters of divinity? Are we recognized as being anybody at all in this world? Who do you think you are telling me I need to be saved? The world wants to know. And the world will not bestow honor on those spokesmen for God who venture to speak the truth in love. These things cannot be known. You are merely speculating, the world says. If we wait for the world to apply a title of honor upon us that gives us the right to speak for God, we'll wait a long time. Either that or we'll sink into apostasy because the world will bestow honor on them. Instead, we sow in dishonor with no regard for the world's approval. We're not aiming for the world's approval. We're aiming for God's approval. Then again, we sow in weakness. We don't presume to be orators who can make fancy speeches, nor do we pretend to be knowledgeable philosophers. Oh, if only we could see that our nothingness and our weaknesses are the greatest qualifications we possess for being used of God. It was their quest to be experts and philosophers that hindered the Corinthians from communicating the gospel. But too often we convince ourselves that our labor is in vain because we don't possess the credentials that the world would impose on us, so we hold back or we give up when all along our labor is not in vain because it pleases God to use weak and insignificant vessels to accomplish his purpose. Something is accomplished, you know, when we view it that way. The glory becomes God's alone. Just as it will be when he resurrects those who have gone to the grave. Oh, let us then be steadfast and unmovable and abounding 
in the Lord's work because our labor is not in vain. It has resurrection power behind it and will be used of God as long as we feel no compulsion to interfere with our own wisdom or our own expertise. May we be found in childlike simplicity, sowing the good seed of God's word. Just dropping the seeds as often as you can of the truth of the gospel of Christ. So we know that our labor is not in vain when we understand the spiritual nature of that labor. Consider next that we know our labor is not in vain when we understand the foundation for our labor. And this takes us back to this morning, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. That's our foundation. That's the foundation for our labor. If that's not true, then our labor is in vain. But because Christ's resurrection is true, our labor is not in vain. Because of this glorious truth, Paul could say, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have believed, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no gospel. Hence, there would be no salvation. In Paul's day, the doctrine of the resurrection was already under attack, even before he was called home to glory. There were those who proclaimed that Christ hadn't risen bodily because Christ was never really a man, but rather a spirit or a phantom who only appeared as a man. You recall this morning I point out that was a prevalent notion among the ancient Greek Gnostics. They did not believe that God would ever take to himself flesh because flesh by its very nature uh, is intrinsically evil and God would never take something to himself that was intrinsically evil. So they denied the incarnation of Christ and of course they would also deny the resurrection of Christ with the same basis in reason. Such attacks against the person of Christ have ensued down through the ages, and it is against such attacks specifically that Paul exhorts us to be steadfast and unmovable. O oh, Christ did indeed come. He was incarnate, and he is risen from the dead. And because Christ is indeed risen bodily from the grave, we have a gospel to proclaim, and we have the authority to proclaim it. This is why we don't need man's approval or some authority from man delegated to us. God has given us this authority. We have it from the highest source that we are to communicate the gospel. Because he is risen, we know that he's the Son of God and has all authority committed to him. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. We know this more than 2,000 years later. We know it and we say we believe it, but I can't help but wonder, do we know it? 
How well have we grasped it? How firmly do we believe that Christ is indeed risen from the dead? It seems that with the passing of so much time since that glorious event, we're so prone to treat the truth of it as if it were a cunningly devised fable. And that's where the early church stands in contrast to the modern church. What was it that drove them to do what they did? And I always like to think of that picture that's painted for us really very briefly in Acts chapter 8 where we read that they were scattered. Those that believe in Christ were scattered out of Jerusalem except for the apostles. And that's all it says. And yet try to envision what that meant. They were driven from their homes. They were driven from their Jobs. They were driven from their familiar uh, surroundings. And yet, how do we see them? Do we see a group of downcast, dejected, sad Christian refugees dragging their feet in the sand, saying, Woe is me since I become a Christian? Quite the opposite. We see them driven by the joy of the Lord. Why? Because they knew that Christ was indeed risen from the dead, that they weren't following cunningly devised fables. So you could chase them from their homes, you could throw them in prison, you could have some of them executed, but one thing you could not do, and that was shut them up. They knew that Christ was risen from the dead. Look what the truth of the resurrection did to Paul. It put him in jeopardy every hour. So we read in verse 30, If the dead rise not, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Verse 32, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? So convinced was Paul of the resurrection of Christ that it removed all fear from him in any and every circumstance that he faced. And no one knew better than Paul that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here is the real test of our grasp of the resurrection. If we have grasped it and believe it, we'll be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord to the degree that we fail to abound to that same degree we have, as it were, let slip the glorious truth that Christ is risen from the dead. To the degree that our zeal languishes, to the same degree we treat the resurrection as if it were but a cunningly devised fable. Oh, that we would stop and contemplate it and ask God to burn it into our hearts. We serve a risen Savior. This is what set the church on fire in the book of Acts. This is the foundation for our labor. Christ is risen from the dead. Our labor can't be vain if Christ is risen. The right grasp of this simple, foundational, and glorious gospel truth will light the fire in our hearts, a fire of zeal to the Lord, 
Oh, may the Lord light that fire. Let's sanctify this day to contemplate the truth that Christ is risen. That is why we meet on the first day of the week, you know. As I said this morning, this is bigger. The resurrection of Christ is bigger than an annual day to commemorate the truth of it. That's why we meet on the first day of the week. The resurrection demands that much, that the day be changed from the seventh to the first day. It's that significant. It's that foundational. So let's utilize this day and every Lord's day to contemplate the glorious truth that our Savior is risen. We see then the nature of our labor in the resurrection of Christ. We see the foundation for our labor in the resurrection of Christ. Let's think for a moment finally that to understand our labor is not in vain. We must understand the eternal issues behind our labor. The eternal issues behind our labor. Look with me again, if you would. Verse 52 through 54. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Corruption will give way to incorruption. Mortality is going to give way to immortality. The resurrection of the dead signifies both eternal life and eternal damnation. These are the issues behind our labor. These are the issues that spring from the truth of the resurrection. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 29, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. To the extent that we grasp the eternal issues behind the resurrection, therefore, to the same extent we grasp the truth that our labor is not in vain. The problem is that we tend to measure our labor by the here and now. I sow the seed of the gospel once in a while, but nothing seems to come of it, so I conclude that my sowing is in vain. If we can't see past today, indeed, if we can't see past when time is no more, then we are vulnerable to the temptation in thinking that our labor is in vain. What a shame it is that so much of Christendom in America today is described by Paul in verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is the very epitome of short-sightedness. That's the world's thinking. How sad that we ourselves all too often think the way the world thinks. 
The truth is that when everything is revealed on that judgment day, we will see then and understand plainly the truth of Isaiah 55 and verse 11, where God says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. I suppose you could substitute the word vain there. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And when the resurrection vindicates this truth, oh, how many of us will sigh and will marvel and say to ourselves, why did I think it was vain to labor for the Lord? Why did I think it would accomplish nothing to sow the seed of the gospel? Why didn't I avail myself of so many opportunities to labor for the Lord? Yea, why didn't I abound in the work of the Lord? We look forward to the resurrection of the dead. We see in it the end of one order for the establishment of a better one. We look forward to death being swallowed up in victory. We look forward to being perfected in our praise to the full enjoying of Christ throughout eternity. We look forward to eternal life being freed from our weaknesses and our infirmities and our sins. But let's not forget that while we have our brief season in this world, we have opportunities that will be forever gone when time gives way to eternity. Here we have the opportunity to share our faith, to sow the gospel seed, to endure reproach for the honor of the name of Christ, and to have a part in bringing in the harvest. And if we're not growing, it's because we're not sowing. And if we're not sowing, it's because we're not convinced that it's not in vain. We have every reason to believe that our labor is not in vain. The nature of our labor tells us it's not in vain. Though we sow in weakness, God's strength is perfected in weakness. The foundation of our labor tells us it's not in vain. Now is Christ risen from the dead. He is, therefore, the Son of God. He did indeed die for our sins. His gospel is true. His salvation is real. The issues of eternity behind our labor tells us that it's not in vain. Though the visible results may not be immediately seen, eternity will reveal that the Lord's word never returned to him void. Behind every saved sinner can be found a sowing process. That sowing process will be revealed in that last day, and it will show to us just how many Christians participated in the labor of salvation without seeing immediate fruit. I remember Dr. Cairns made this point many years ago. He said that on that day when everything is sorted out, that there will not be any single individual that can take all the credit for the salvation of any soul. It will be revealed that there was a sowing process behind it. I can still remember some of those seeds that came my way before I was converted. 
I remember when I worked uh, as a teenager, actually, in Wisconsin. I, I worked, I had a clerk job in the Department of Social Services. Really was a, probably the easiest job I ever had. Maybe one of the highest paying, for that matter, since it was government work. But I remember among the tasks I had to perform, one of them was opening all of these uh, form letters that were sent in, I suppose, by people applying for welfare. And all I had to do was take them out of the envelope and file them alphabetically in some kind of a system where they would be dealt with by somebody higher up the chain. And I remember on one occasion in particular, as I was pulling uh, the form out of the envelope, there was something else in that envelope. It was a gospel track. I remember looking at it, very simple. Check all the things listed here you think you have to do to make it to heaven. Be good, go to church, keep the commandments, etc., etc. Then on the back of the track, it simply said, nope, none of that's going to work. You need Christ. Now, that, that didn't lead to my salvation at that time. But you know what? I never forgot that either. It, it sowed a seed in my heart that would come to fruition eventually. And so it is with us when we sow the seed of God's Word. We don't know what we're going to accomplish. I remember a number of years ago, I hope nobody in the Nyman family will uh, uh, get upset with me for picking on them. I'm not really picking on them, but I'm pointing out what I remember was told me, and I don't remember who it was in their family that did this, but I remember they shared with me how thrilled they were to discover that when they returned library books, they could leave a gospel track in that book. Um, Sow the seed with every opportunity you can find. Sow the seed of God's word. Uh, leave it in the little, uh, the little net case in front of you when you're flying on an airplane. You know, somebody's got to pick it up and do something with it. You don't know what it will accomplish. I know I've shared with you, it's been some while since I shared this with you, good friend of mine, Tim Williams, some of you may recall, he was studying to become a Jesuit priest once upon a time in his younger days, and he was under such a load of guilt that he had made the decision to commit suicide. He lived in Alaska. He's on his way to the river where he intended to throw himself in, and he finds a gospel track in the snow. And instead of killing himself, he comes to Christ, becomes a Christian. Uh, I, I tell you what, I haven't seen Tim in a good long while, and I know Tim has had some other issues along the way, but he continues to worship Christ. And one of the things I never forgot about Tim is that he never failed to give out gospel tracts wherever he went. He knew the potential by his own experience of what could be accomplished. So sow the seed, give out the word, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the, your labor for the Lord. And be assured that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Lord will see to it. 
The fact that he's risen from the dead proves that he'll see to it. Oh, may we indeed then give heed to Paul's exhortation. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. Oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this service to a close, we thank thee that we serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. We know that he has risen, whatever men may say. We've heard his word. It's come to our hearts effectually. You've shown us our sins. You've brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life by thy grace and by nothing short of resurrection power. Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us, therefore. May we find our motivation greatly inspired by the glorious truth that we do serve a living Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.